Welcome to a brand new episode. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show. Hello and welcome to The Python Show with your host, Mike Driscoll. That's me. Today we have a wonderful new guest, uh, Doug Farrell who has written a wonderful Python book called The Well-Grounded Python Developer. We're just going to talk to him a little bit about his book and his journey in Python today. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks, Mike. I'm very glad to be here. It's great to have you as well. I think we'll just kind of kick off uh, the show and ask you you know, to tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to programming. Sure. I've been, uh, I've been programming for a long time, probably a scary long time since uh, 1983. So uh, coming up on 40 years, um, yeah, I, be, I began, began as uh, doing micro, uh, microcomputers like uh, Radio Shack Color Computer was my real introduction to computing. And then that helped me learn enough buzzwords to get my first job as a process control engineer, uh, where they had their own proprietary language. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that. And that also involved doing some Pascal work. And I, I did well enough at that to transfer to their software development group, and never looked back. And I've been developing software ever since. At that point, I was doing uh, C and uh, Portran, and then I moved into C++ and was working in embedded systems doing machine control with C++. And uh, then Mm -hmm. I moved to an internet group. um, was making, I don't know, back in the day, I don't remember if you remember the Encarta, Microsoft Mm -hmm. uh, Encyclopedia. I was working for a competitor of theirs, the Grolier Encyclopedia, doing... uh, uh, CD-ROM retail software, and then eventually for them, we moved to uh, hmm. internet their internet group, where we were. Uh, that was where I first got introduced to Python. We were doing some uh, PHP work mm-hmm. for their online uh, web references, and uh, they were also looking at Perl, and I was horrified by Perl, so <laughs> I was looking at, <laughs> looking for something else, and I was fortunate that I discovered Python, and it really it really uh, fit the way I think. I was very mm-hmm. much uh, had both speed in this in the uh, object oriented programming world, and Python's built in support for OOP type programming uh, really fit my brain well. And yeah. uh, so that was like in 2000, uh, 2001. And uh, although mm-hmm. it wasn't my main language at the time, I did a lot of Python work at that job. And then in 2006, I moved to a company that uh, eventually became, became part of Shutterfly, where I was doing mm-hmm. Python exclusively and JavaScript. I'm curious, and, which uh, version of Python was it in 2001? Oh, this was way back, uh, Python 2.5. <laughs> yeah, I think 2.5 came out with... in 2006 when I started doing Python. Oh, was it? So... It might have been. It might have been 2.3 even earlier. It's a long time I was ago. Say. Huh. Interesting. Anyway, go hot. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt your story. I <laughs> no, that's right. Like, that's interesting. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, as I say in my book. Um, Python hits the sweet spot for me in programming. It's uh, it's fast to develop in. It uh, I can sort of almost think right from in mm-hmm. thoughts to code, and it executes uh, like um, the object-oriented nature of it. And then that's it's uh, support for functional style programming, and just the ease and expressiveness of the language really uh, suits me. And I don't think I, although I really enjoyed my C and C plus plus work because I used to be a speed freak. Uh, mm-hmm. with embedded systems trying to eke more work out of computer cycles. I don't really yeah. want to go back to that kind of work. 
Yeah, that always sounded like really hard work to me. It was. It was fun. We worked on. A, I worked on a machine that uh, could. It was a pick and place machine for building circuit boards, and it was you know it was moving pretty fast, twenty thousand parts an hour. So wow. it was really moving very quickly, very fast. And um, although that's fun and challenging, um, working building a thing like that, and at that time it was DOS and then uh, Windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, you run into the problem where you just like ninety percent of your time is spent trying to code things to keep the thing from crashing. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious since you mentioned Fortran and C, uh, is there like a speed difference? How do you compare those languages? Fortran has some. Uh, uh, it has nice libraries. That's at least that's how I I vision it. That people like it because it okay. has a lot of nice libraries for computational stuff. And it was odd because uh, the, what we were using it for was not that at all. So it didn't really fit the bill for doing, I, I don't know about you, but I, just, I feel like a great deal of my life is, is centered around string manipulation with mm-hmm. code. And Fortran doesn't really do that all that well. Uh, but huh. it is fast. I, I would say it's comparable for certain things to C. Um, hmm. In C++, I felt that C++ got... The performance wasn't as high, but on the other hand, the safety mechanisms that you could take advantage of with C++ were worth it for this the small degradation in speed. Mm-hmm. You know, smart pointers and the standard library containers and things like that, uh, mm-hmm. which you'd have to handle if you could if you could thought of it, you'd have to handle by yourself in straight C code. Yeah, interesting. I wish I had this conversation with my my old coworker who used to be a COBOL programmer. Oh, I'm, always, yeah. I'm always curious, you know, I, when I was in school, like the year before I, I went to do my university, they just got rid of the Fortran class. And I was like, what am I missing out on here? Am I missing out on anything? So <laughs> anyway. I so. Oh, I, I remember I, I have a story about COBOL if you want to hear it. Um, sure. I was my, my first, my first exposure to Fortran was uh, back in the punch card days, IBM punch cards. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way it worked, you had to take your deck of cards downstairs and hand them over to a uh, a mean-faced person who would put them in the machine. <laughs> you know, you couldn't get close to the computer. You just hand over the cards and off you go. Mm-hmm. And uh, because it was downstairs in the library, it was a typical you know school building with uh, the hard marble stairs, hard marble floor, so it could be slippery. While mm-hmm. I was down there, you know, waiting, you know, waiting for my turn to hand over my little deck of like twenty Fortran cards. Someone came downstairs with their COBOL program, which essentially did the same thing as mine, like it's just a double iteration through a table. And, okay. But it was an armful of cards. It was a whole box, like a foot and a half long of cards. Wow. And they slipped, and the cards went flying all over the floor. Wow. And uh, I, it, was a, it was a woman, and uh, she burst into tears. And as far as I know, she quit the program. <laughs> Yeah, she couldn't. She couldn't bear to resort them back in order. <laughs> yeah, I know there's a lot of boilerplate in COBOL. Oh I did, my. A, I did a little bit of that in college, but not very much. <laughs> huh. But so that was you... my exposure to, to COBOL. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear COBOL is still a good language to know if you're if you have to deal with insurance or for or uh, banking. Yeah, it's it's still big in a lot of industries because of legacy systems. Yeah. So anyway, uh, getting back to more modern languages, why are you still using Python? <laughs> well, like I said, it still it still hits the sweet spot. I mean, um, 
one of the things that I've found is, you know, you get you occasionally get into um, conversations where people talk about, well, Python is this or Python is slow. And one of the things they talk about it, um, in comparison to this language or that language. Uh, but from my point of view, uh, we're long past the tipping point where the sp speed of the CPU is the, t is, uh, the crucial on the, on the critical path. I'm the one that's on the critical path. My ability to produce code and hit market windows is more important than some fast piece of code. Um, yeah. And Python's been fast enough for what I've, the kinds of things that I want to build. And I've built a lot of stuff. I'm uh, built websites, um, computation mm -hmm. stuff, quick scripts, you know, do uh, to automate the boring stuff kind of scripts. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of processes like that. And just the ability to quickly deliver, turn stuff around, deliver, uh, well, well formatted, uh, well thought out code quickly. And uh -huh. then the other thing that the other thing that's everybody's aware of who's a programmer is that change is a constant. And what I mean by not the language, but the requirements of a program are constantly yes. changing. Uh, and you know, somebody wants it to do this or somebody wants it to do that. And for me, I mean, it's part of my experience is to try to build codes that's flexible and extensible. But Python really helps that, that you can um, keep the code agile so that it can accommodate uh, future requests. It's, a, it's, it's pointless to try to anticipate the future in code. Just you know, meet the requirements with a smart uh, infrastructure, and then uh, you're able to adapt for a long time before it becomes unsustainable. Yeah, for, yeah, I, I have had pretty much the same experience with Python. In almost all cases, it's been more than fast enough. And if it isn't, yeah. it's almost always because the developers did something wrong. You know? <laughs> yeah. There has been a few cases. But again, it's usually like, oh, that's the database that needs to be fixed, not, exactly. the, not the Python. Yeah, I mean, if you uh, think about it, a database is orders of magnitude slower than the CPU and the program. Yes. And there's, there's usually a lag because you're communicating with another device. Especially, you know, these days, uh, a lot of my work is all in the cloud. So you have lots of crosstalk between different applications through uh, top, you know, queues mm -hmm. and networks. So those account, those uh, account for a lot more of the uh, time in a program than the programming language. Yeah. Huh. Well, right, well we're going to change the topics just a little bit and talk okay. about um, how your book, The Well-Grounded Python Developer, came about. Well, it's a, also a long, uh, tortured story. No, it's a, <laughs> <laughs> it started out a long time ago when I was at Shutterfly. Uh, I got involved in giving t talks about Python mm -hmm. at uh, the all hands engineering meetings that we would have, and they were they were pretty well received. I'm, you know, as you can tell, I'm I'm a, a gas bag and could go on and on. Uh, and can be somewhat entertaining speaking. So I, what happened? I got after the first one. We would have these all hands meetings twice a year, and I was asked mm -hmm. every time I would be asked to give a presentation, and I was you know I put something together that would be interesting, and I got I was getting good feedback about that, and yeah. um, when I I thought about it, I said, well, I'm gonna maybe I could turn these presentations into an article, and mm -hmm. uh, I did. I I got in touch with Dan Bader, who had uh, his own site, DanBader.org. This was before he acquired the Real Python site. Mm -hmm. And uh, he and I got to talking, and I wrote an article, a couple of articles for his site, and then um, nice. he took over Real Python, and um, I converted some of those articles to the real to Real Python, and hmm. the Real Python site updated them, 
And then I yeah. wrote, I don't know, I wrote five or six other articles that were well received. And um, cool. And then all of a sudden, this fellow from uh, Manning Publications got in touch with me because he had read the articles and he approached me about the idea of, of uh, writing a book, which I hadn't really thought of because it's a, it's a huge commitment. And I was mm -hmm. right about that guesswork. Uh, yep. <laughs> and he and I got to talking about the kinds of book that I would want to write and, you know, the, the market and where I thought things were going. And before you know it, I was on the hook for a book. And uh, <laughs> so that's that's how it got started. That was, that was, I think, more than three years ago now. Mm -hmm. uh, actually start creating the book and uh, the yeah. kinds of things I wanted to say in the book. So what, you know, I can't tell just by looking at the title, what exactly is the book talking about? Well, it's a problem. We, we had a lot of discussions about the title and it's like, okay, you, you send up like, Oh, we want to say what the book does and you end up with a title that's a hundred words long. So it doesn't really work. But um, for me, I did, I didn't want to create a, a how to write programs in Python, a beginner's book. There's lots of, really yes. good beginner's books and resources out there for that. And I didn't want to uh, do that. But what I did want to do was um, I wanted to help people think uh, bigger picture. So that in, in my mind, I thought if I want to help a person who thinks of themselves as a programmer, maybe they've written one or two, uh, one file Python script uh, to do something to make their life easier. I want to help move them from being a programmer to being a developer and be able to take on bigger projects to think about the big picture. How do they break up um, a big project into manageable pieces? How do they structure the code so it is manageable? Uh, yeah. and how do they, you know, Python's often thought of as a glue language. How do they glue lots of technologies together to create a large application like, you know, a web server? And it led to my choice of a demonstration app. How do I create a web server? How do I connect that to a database? How do I deliver that data to the user? Um, that was that was the kinds of things I wanted to talk about. So I, I the book is split into two halves. There's a groundwork work phase, which I talk about okay. just general, uh, from my point of view, valuable things to know as a Python developer, like namespaces, uh, naming conventions for variables, mm, yeah. how to how to handle exceptions, how to create exceptions, what the purpose of exceptions are. You know, all of our programs exist in the real world, so you have to handle problems that either uh, bugs, user input, uh, changes in the environment that your program's running in. Mm -hmm. um, I also had a, a large section on just just databases, which is an abstract, just abstract, tangential to the to the thrust of the book. Just yeah. to talk about databases in general, like why you would want to use a database instead of a, a CSV file instead, you know, for data persistence. Mm, yeah. And then the second half of the book is all about uh, creating a demonstration app to pull all these topics together um, okay. to create a web application, a blogging application, which is not, it's certainly not cutting edge. There's lots of ones that you can just download and run, but how do you mm -hmm. think about putting one of those things together? And it goes from ground zero, a simple flask application um, okay. to adding authentication, uh, adding pages, uh, how the authentication could be used to uh, protect the pages, mm -hmm. uh, having user the users stored in the database access to a database and then eventually having um, being able to add user content and then allow people to comment on that content yeah. and all of that's saved in the database uh, for the final application which was a, a lot of fun and I think uh, useful it does make the book like half half about flask but I don't think that that's uh, a, not a bad idea I think it's a pretty good approach
Yeah, and it also shows you know how to add new features without yeah. you know screwing up your code. Yeah, I, I use I used uh, like Flash blueprints. I use that as kind of the Flash uh, way of doing namespaces to separate out code into namespaces so that it becomes manageable. So you can keep uh, your thought domain on one thing. Like authentication is one blueprint, so you can just think about authentication there. It's not mixed in with everything. Uh, yeah. Generating content is one blueprint. Um, information about the app, like the um, the about page and things like that, are separate namespaces. Okay, cool. Nice. So uh, what are some key things you learned when you're writing this book? Well, it was uh, so much work. Yeah. <laughs> One of the key things I learned was that my wife has tremendous patience. Uh, <laughs> She has one of the jokes that we tell quite often is that she's very proud of me about the book, but she has about this much tolerance for it anymore. <laughs> yeah. They take uh, a lot of work. It does take a lot of work. I, uh, I had to dedicate, I, you know, I had in the course of writing the book, I had two job changes and I have a full-time job, which is demanding and a family life that's demanding. So there's a lot of nights and weekends in writing the book. One of the other things I found was, writing a technical book is like writing two books. You have the content, uh, the written content, but then there's the example programs, which my book has a lot of, is like yep. another whole book, which you have to in sync with the written content and make sure it works and uh, up to date. Mm -hmm. So, so like, that's a real process. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I've, I don't know if you did this, but whenever I'm working on even just regular articles, I, I typically will write all of the examples ahead of time and before I start actually writing, you know, a chapter or an article. I, I did quite a bit of that. I usually wrote uh, examples like at least one chapter ahead, if not two, mm -hmm. uh, which kind of, it helped minimize having to go back and modify code when you ran into problems. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I used to, <laughs> my, my old way of writing was I'll, I'll write the intro and then I'll write the code and then I'll write some more and, why do you get in trouble when you do that? So I yeah. stopped doing that. Yeah, I probably should have done the whole uh, write the code all the way through it one in one go because uh, I did have to end up partly because uh, the editorial process towards the end of the book <clears throat> there was a lot of uh, reorganizing chapters or splitting big chapters into two, which made uh, taking the code apart to fit the chapter layout was uh, kind of a problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have to be real careful with that. Huh. Here's a related, a related topic. Oh well, actually, I'm going to I'm going to back up before I go to the next question. Sure. Now that your book is out there, have you gotten any feedback from your from readers? That I you know, have gotten a little bit of feedback. Um, it's mostly people I know, or uh, you know, who people who are following me on LinkedIn or whatever, uh, who who sort of see my my commentary and whenever I, whenever I uh, published a new article on real Python, they were following me already. So um, I've gotten some good feedback. People seem to enjoy the book. Um, I'm looking, I'm hopeful to get more feedback from uh, in the wild, so to speak, from people who don't know me and may not be so kind <laughs> to see what they really think. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah. One thing from one author to another that I would avoid doing is, uh, for the most part, it's probably reading the, the really negative reviews because they, they really kind of hurt. So, yeah, I did have I did have somebody. Uh, this was a, I think a year ago. Put together a pretty harsh 
comment on Twitter about the book. And uh, I was like, oh, man. So I, I got in touch with my development editor at Manning, and uh, they said, ah, that guy's only got 12 followers. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have to, you got to be real careful because I don't know why it is as humans, but uh, you know, you get one or two bad comments, and you have a thousand good ones, and those two bad ones just stick out all for a long time. Yeah, but, it was, well, I'm sure you had this experience. I had uh, uh, quite a bit of feedback from technical reviewers that uh, Manning got in touch with, and uh, you know, I would say about half of that I have to really take with a grain of salt because although the commentary was really useful, sometimes it was clear that the commenter uh, was really focused on their domain, you know, their problem domain or where they work or the kinds mm. of things that they do. And like, yep. my book doesn't fit that. I'm like, well, no, it's not intended for that. <laughs> yep. Yep. I've seen that as well. All right. Now I'm ready to change the topic. Okay. So. <laughs> um, so what have you been learning as a real Python contributor? Like what's different about that whole process versus like writing a book? Um, you mean like uh, adding to the Python uh, world community? Well, just being part of the real Python community. Oh, um, well, it's uh, the, the real Python community. Is, I really enjoy working with those guys. Uh, I don't know if you know Gare Arna. Um, he's one of the editors there. He edited my, my, most, my last article. He is really great. He's really terrific. He really knows his stuff. He's also an incredibly tough editor. Oh my God! The article I wrote took months, <laughs> months to pass muster with him, uh, yeah. but it, it came out to be a very good and I think uh, well-received article. Those guys are really, really know their stuff technically, and and will call you out and you know to improve, make sure the quality of the article is really good. Um, they don't worry so much about marketing uh, stuff or the marketing window, whereas uh, working with Manning, that was kind of a constant conversation. Like, where does my where does my book fit? In the market, has the market changed? And the, with the articles, it's a very, it's a kind of a short term. You know, it's a couple months before you publish an article. With a book, it's a couple of years, and you get questions like, "Is your book still uh, relevant? Uh, yeah. Does it meet the market? Who's the who's the intended reader?" Because of the length of time it takes to write a book, and that those questions came up, and I don't know if you have to say like I had to defend myself, but those questions did come up in the life of writing, in the span of writing the book. That's interesting. Yeah. The little bit I've had in in real publishing is that I didn't have that problem because one was buying my, the rights to my book and they just kind of remixed it. And the other one didn't care, didn't seem to care about the market. They were just like, this is what we want and we'll publish it when we want to. And so I didn't have that problem. But That's interesting. Yeah, these guys were very concerned about <coughs> about um it was part of why the conversation about changing the title all the time was like make it more relevant. And towards the end of the book, yeah. they were uh, they had kind of were hinting at adding uh, fast API to the book to do some asynchronous code. And I'm like, it's a little, it's really kind of, I would do a disservice if I was just to add one chapter about that. That should sort of be out of left field. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. I mean, one of the reasons I kind of avoid writing about web programming in general is because of that, that problem you were talking about with your book is I'm afraid by the time I get the article put together or even published, or even on my own website, it'll probably be, you know, obsolete within the next six months. And it I just, is a problem. I'm, I'm like, 
who's going to read this? And then I'm just going to get bug reports forever unless I go back and keep it up to date. Well, I did. I worked very hard to uh, keep the requirements uh, modules up to date as much as I could so that by the time the book was published, it was still, it was pretty close to current with uh, like Flask and SQL Alchemy and things like that. But yeah, yeah. You, you, once, and I do, I did pin, pin the modules I'm using in the requirements. So, yeah. um, you know, it'll, it'll stay running for a long time. It may, and hopefully stay relevant because, um, yeah. You know, those, those things might, at least you can see how it runs, even if it falls out of date, uh, as far as, uh, the pace of change in the Python world. Yeah. That was one thing I, I didn't do for my, there was a book before last that I, I should have pinned the open pixel version I was using for that book. I didn't do it. And the examples work if you use my, my input, but if you use other input, they don't work the same way, which yeah. is really interesting. But <laughs> I wanted yeah. to avoid that. It caused me it caused me some stress. I was because occasionally I would update the requirements to some new module, and all of a sudden, my you know I'd have to work all the way through my example code to make sure everything's still working. Sometimes it didn't. Yeah, that's something something I probably need to write about is how do you write tests for your book so yeah. that you can check to make sure your book still works. <laughs> and that was and that was one thing I didn't do. I didn't um, I didn't publish anything about tests in my book. I didn't do any. You know, talk about unit tests other than that were necessary, because again, it's a big topic and it's, it deserves another whole book by itself. So a chapter would have done a disservice to it. Yeah, yeah, that that would eat up a lot of a lot of space in your book too. Yeah, but you know, it's a, and it would be, um, you know, kind of be a change of direction. You know, suddenly you break off break off the topic and you're off on something else. And I did yeah. that once already with the database work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, and I know you don't, you're not currently like teaching students, but now with all of this AI stuff, let's say you had that all that stuff back when you were teaching, how would do you think that would change, you know, how you teach, or or I, how do you think it'll impact students now? Well, I think um, I mean I I use ChatGPT now to try to help me solve problems in areas that I don't know, uh, mm -hmm. things that I'm learning in programming. Um, I think, you know, like most things, most new things, it's a double-edged sword. I think it'd be really yep. useful to a teacher and to students in a programming class. Uh, I think the problem, I experienced this problem not with ChatGPT, but similar things. When I mm -hmm. was teaching uh, at a STEM place, the kids would learn a new thing. Like they would suddenly, the, ah, the, the light bulb would go on, the aha moment when they mm -hmm. realize what's possible with what I'm teaching. And then they would fixate on that and do it, variations of it, like a hundred times. It was hard yeah. to get them to like move on to another topic. And I think the chat GPT uh, offers an opportunity like tenfold for students to uh, essentially go down the rabbit hole. They, they ask GPT something about what they're learning and then mm -hmm. they're off, they're off on a tangent. And it's, I think it would be, it was for me. It was, it's difficult to get their get their attention back with with the next topic because they're busy creating yeah. interesting and cool variations of the thing that they've learned now. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I know when I was teaching, I was teaching the kids. Um, I used the turtle module so that we could get graphics on the screen right away because I thought that would be mm -hmm. uh, you know more of a attention grabber than just teaching dry text programming. Yeah. Um, 
So I would teach them. I taught them how to create a function that would draw a box with the turtle. And then we had a, a variation where you could change the number of sides and it would automatically figure out how to draw a pentagram and a hexagram. And mm. uh, before you know it, kids were drawing, you know, thousand sided boxes and they thought that was the coolest thing and they just wouldn't quit. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Man, I, I've got to play with the turtle module some more. Uh, the person I, I interviewed earlier this month, uh, Stephen Grupetta, uh, uses the, uh, the the turtle module a lot. And he does some really cool things with, with it. Or he can, oh, it's amazing. He, he's figured out how to do animations with it and yeah. landing. And I'm like, man, I definitely need to check this thing out. <laughs> it's very cool. It's a different way of thinking about drawing, but it's very cool stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, related to that, what do you think, uh, what did you see that was tripping students up the most when they were learning about programming? It, um, uh, it's a, kind of surprised me, but it, everything about teaching uh, students surprises me. What's, what's, a, what's difficult <laughs> and what I take for granted. And it just points yep. out that, you know, I've been doing this too long. Uh, <laughs> but one of, one of the things that I, I use is I wrote, a, I wrote a little presentation about what I consider the four pillars of programming, you know, variables, mm-hmm. Variables, um, loops, conditionals, <clears throat> and statements. Um, okay. And um, you know, I, it's easy for me, I'm sure, the same for you to take take for granted what a variable is. Well, I found that when I was teaching kids, and, and I was teaching kids from age eight to the age of fifteen, uh, so okay. the young kids. And the thing that 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 we would get stuck on a lot was the concept of a variable, the abstraction uh, of a variable name relating to the thing that it's, you know, the, the value that it represents. And that abstraction was, was kind of tough to get over. They were just, they were much more comfortable using um, literals, like uh, literal strings, literal numbers and stuff. Yeah. But the, the idea of keeping track of something that's changing constantly, but has a fixed name uh, mm. was a tough, was a t- tough concept to get over. And then, yeah. you know, if I got to a point where I felt like, okay, they're, they're People are getting it. Uh, then you you move on to something like a Python list, where now it's a single name that refers to many things, only some of which maybe changing at a time. Or a dictionary, mm-hmm. and it would we'd you know be another stumbling block for a little while till we could sort of get pe- get people's minds wrapped around the idea of like, oh, this is. Um, I I used to do it with post-it notes. I like we'd do this sort of human programming, where the kids would run around with post-it yeah. notes of the variable and like be changing the you know, crossing out a value on the post-it note, writing a new value, and that's the that's the variable mm. that they hand off to somebody else. I'm not sure if it helped help them or not, but that's where that's the kind of thing that I would use in the class. I think that's a good object lesson. And yeah, kind of makes it more real. Yeah. So I know I know in university, it was, it, learning to program was really hard that first that first year or two. But like, what does all this information even mean? All this yeah. terminology and abstractness. Oh, I know. I, I got hung up on. Uh, I took um, I took a C class, a C and C plus plus class, ages ago, and I was already doing C plus uh, plus, mm-hmm. and I failed <laughs> because <laughs> it was it was in this weird this weird instance of C plus plus on a on a, a Linux box. I didn't really know at all. I was working in Windows and. Mm-hmm. The, the way you, the whole, so just the technology or the infrastructure of building a program, how does the linker work? How does a make file work? Yep. Uh, 
how do you how do you connect all these uh, these various different parts together? That was like there was so much uh, overhead just to actually get to the point where you could write a program that would actually do something. Yeah, crazy. Totally get it though, because it's very different on Linux versus Windows. Oh yeah, yeah. Windows, I like I said, I was working on embedded systems in Windows, and you know, like I said, ninety-five percent of the time I just spent chasing crashes. <laughs> yep. Well, cool. Uh, anyway, I thought that 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 was a really good uh, conversation about your book and what you've been doing lately. Thanks, Mike. It, it was fun for me too. Yeah, and I really appreciate you coming on the show and just spending all this time with me to talk about your your career and what you've been up to. So, anyway, I want to thank our listeners for listening to uh, the Python Show, and I hope you all will come back. And hopefully, Doug will come back too. Yeah, that'd we be can great. Do this again sometime. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Great. All right. Well, I'm going to sign off for now, but uh, thanks for coming. All right. Follow on Apple Podcasts. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show.